Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Joy and today's episode is about dolphins. We're talking with Angie Gullen, the founder of not-for-profit Dolphin Care Africa and the Dolphin Encounters Research Center in Pontador, Mozambique. Now, like most humans, we love dolphins and we're super excited to find Angie because the Dolphin Encounters Research Center is both a research facility for Africa's southeastern dolphins, but also an ethical and sustainable ecotourism operation that facilitates swimming with wild dolphins in the most respectful way possible. We were lucky enough to join Angie's team for two boat launches. We swam with the most beautiful sentient ocean beings and we witnessed firsthand Angie's strict code of conduct put in place to ensure the dolphins remain happy and content in their own homes. We learned a ton from Angie and her team and are pleased to be able to share some of her stories, learnings and advice with you. You'll be able to find the show notes for the episode and the links to Angie's work at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. And now feel free to nestle in and as you listen, imagine yourself in Mozambique's beachside paradise with troops of monkeys, humpback whales and Angie's dolphins. Angie, thank you so much for having us here in the beautiful southernmost tip of Mozambique. We're in Pontadora. Is that the correct pronunciation? That's absolutely it. Pontadora, right. the point of gold. The point of gold. No yes. kidding, right? Yeah. And we're right at the border between Mozambique and South Africa. Correct. And this is a hot spot for amazing creatures of the ocean, right? Absolutely, that it is. So yes. we are super excited <laughs> to be here. It is an absolute thrill. Let's start off with yourself. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was actually born in Johannesburg, so I spent uh, most of my life growing up there and I moved up here permanently in uh, 1999 uh, when I was around about 28 years old. But oh, wow. um, yeah, I spent most of my life growing up in, in the city. So uh, yeah, really quite interesting and quite a life change um, coming from living in the city to Pontadora and uh, in those days there really was not much here at all. First time I came up here the only form of accommodation we could get was in the main campsite one ablution block that was working and one restaurant by means of a small caravan. That was Ponta for you. One scuba dive concession. It was beautiful. It was really nice and quiet. So, um, yeah, it was a big change coming from the city. There was no electricity. You know, everything was run on generators. It was wild. <laughs> I came up here scuba diving um, to come and do my open water one scuba diving course. Yeah. Um, obviously, at that stage, the borders had just opened after the war. So it was pretty wild. No development whatsoever. But yeah, one scuba diving company and we all kind of came up here, trekked through here um, and camped out for a couple of days and yes. uh, that's when I had my first experiences with the dolphins and um, of course that was a, a complete life changer for me. It saw me moving up here permanently a little while later. Tell us <laughs> about that first experience, what was that like? So when I initially came up here I didn't actually want to become a scuba diver, I was absolutely petrified of the ocean. I was one of those people that thought okay as soon as I get into the water that great white shark off Madagascar <laughs> now knows that I'm swimming with dolphins, he's now going to come and eat me. So that was my whole <laughs> mindset. So um, I was really really petrified and on our way back from a scuba dive and one of the, the girls on the boat shouted dolphins, dolphins and the skipper stopped and we were all able to kind of bail off the boat and literally in those days it was kind of bail off the boat and there I found myself <laughs> Ooh, we've got a bit of, uh, we've got some mang Samanga monkeys. Samangas, yeah, yeah. Samangas in the background. So if you hear some rustles, that's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, they've decided to come and listen and we've got an audience. There's a whole host of them in the tree behind us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Troop, right? Troop, yeah. 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 So um, we all kind of bailed into the water and there I found myself with a mom and her baby and oh, um, wow. you know she wasn't going anywhere and they were kind of just looking at me and I was like so kind of gobsmacked and so in awe of these complete wild animals just sitting there and kind of taking taking me in and was really quite moving and subsequently to that I used to 
used to come back to Ponta a lot with uh, my partner at the time and my brother and the rest of my family. And yeah, slowly but surely people were kind of getting wind of what we were doing up here. And they were like, oh, can we come with you? You know, we believe you seeing dolphins there. Um, can we come with you? And this is how we actually started the whole program. And we understand that you've had some pretty epic very memorable moments with dolphins. Can you share perhaps? Absolutely. I mean, there are there are so many. I'm going to start with one uh, very, very special dolphin. Her name is Bo, uh, short for bottle opener. Her dorsal fin uh, looked a lot like a bottle opener. You know, oh, bottle opener? Right. So the first time we saw that, that dorsal fin, we said, okay, bottle opener. We're like, okay, well, we can't really call the dolphin bottle opener, so uh, <laughs> he'll call her Bo. But yeah, I met, um, I met this female. Um, it was in the March of 1999 when I just moved up here permanently. And up until that time you know we had been swimming with the dolphins but the dolphins hadn't been swimming with us so on this particular occasion this young female stopped what she was doing she broke away from the pod and she came to what I call consciously interact and yeah she kind of broke away and she came in and she started a uh, circle swimming and yeah my longest interaction with her uh, was an hour at one stage which what? is really quite phenomenal for a wild dolphin encounter so um, yeah that for me is is definitely one of my most memorable because this is when we saw a change in the dolphin encounters from us swimming with them to them actually engaging with us and uh, for me wow. that obviously is the best way to encounter dolphins because yeah it is purely their choice their so choice, um, yeah. yeah that's definitely up there with uh, one of my best and then in 2012 I was uh, really honored to be in the water with um, Mindy, one of our local ladies, when she was giving birth. I've been told that uh, the images that I was able to get are probably some of the first that have ever come out of the wild. Normally we see those kind of images and footage from captive animals. Very At first, special. I really didn't know what was going on. The visibility was r really bad. I hadn't been able to identify the animal yet. And I was just basically looking at the, the tummy area and I was like, no, there's something odd going on here. And then I whoop, looked at the dorsal fin and then it all kind of you know, clicked in, oh my word, she's having her baby. So um, I got a couple of snaps off and then obviously got everybody out of the water uh, so she could basically carve in uh, in peace. And um, she was a little bit offshore and she was in the company of another female. And basically she was... The midwife. Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. So um, dolphins do have midwives and uh, we're told that the purpose of the midwife is uh, to help the little one to the surface for its first breath. And then of course to be on the lookout for any predators right, that might yeah. be around. Yeah, that's what I was so thinking, be quite vulnerable. Right. Exactly, exactly. A lot yeah. of blood and mucus and all that kind of stuff flowing at that stage. So, yeah, um, yeah they would be very vulnerable. So, yeah, uh, but interesting that the two of them were off on their own and the rest of the group were inshore kind of surfing it up. It was like kind of a, a private affair, which um, was really quite special. Yeah. A couple of days later, we saw her with her little, little newborns. The males tend to come and go out of the area. We've been having some really interesting uh, encounters with the big adult males over the last uh, year or so where they're starting to be a little bit more, uh, how can I say aggressive in the water towards us they're not coming towards us if they as if they're going to bite us but they're most certainly coming at us as if to say hey guys you need to back off here um, a lot of more uh, open jaws and jaw clapping that we've been seeing the last year which yeah. is a little bit of a concern but in terms of just going back to the the females when they're carving um, bottlenose dolphins do tend to hang out a lot in the nursery pods so you'll okay. have the the pregnant females with uh, their you know last generation of uh, daughters that are hanging out with that pod uh, and so on and so forth 
So they do tend to kind of hang around in those nursery pods. Then, of course, you get the male bachelor pods as well. And when the little kids from those nursery pods get to uh, that age, then they'll start kind of leaving the pods to go and try and find their own kind of bachelor pods, which, oh, are, wow. which is really interesting for us here. If we have a look at our population now, for example, with Bo, we can tell you that she's had, uh, I think it's five or six uh, offspring now. And um, Rosha was her first baby. Uh, Rosha's now 12 years old, and she recently had her first baby. So wow. in essence now, um, Bo is a grandmother. grandmother. Yes, and we have another female as well, Gilly, uh, with her, her first offspring, Gulliver. She's also just calved, so she's also a grandmother. So this is really great. And um, to get back to the little boys, it's interesting to see when the boys break away from those pods. It's almost as if, for example, like uh, Bo and Gilly are um, best friends. So they'll have two male um, offspring pretty much at the same time, maybe about a year apart. And then those two you'll actually see will actually end up hanging out together. And it's almost, yeah, it's family really dynamics. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's really, really interesting to have a look at, at those dynamics. Yeah. Cousins. Mm. Yeah. That's actually, we, we did the dolphin encounter this morning and in the mm. briefing, um, it was explained to us that the you know, the classic sort of dolphin mm. smile is actually, you know, with the teeth being bared, is actually not exactly. a dolphin smile. That's absolutely. something to be aware of, that's right? That's like absolutely. It's yeah. a caution, hey, is it, that right? It is definitely a caution, and that, that's the behavior that I was talking oh. about just now, that we are seeing over the last year, we've definitely seen a huge increase in this kind of a behavior. And, you know, for a lot of people, they'll get into the water, and this unfortunately comes out of the captive trade, and they'll get into the water and they'll see a dolphin kind of, you know, smiling at you uh, when he's showing you his teeth when he's not he's actually showing you his teeth and he's he's asking you to back off it's really important when kind of undertaking these kind of swim programs to be able to understand what the dolphins are saying to you in that moment in time mm. um, so for us you know as soon as we see that behavior we get out the water straight away so over time they I hope will become conditioned to that they'll be able to approach us give us that kind of behavior and straight away people will move away like like we are currently doing and you yeah. know this area although it is a marine protected area there is a lot of boat traffic over busy seasons over holidays a lot of uh, fishing jet skis that launch a lot of recreational boats that come in and of course you have all the operators that are operating most days if the weather's good they can do three four five launches a day so yeah it uh, can get a little bit um a little bit stressful do, you, busy, yeah. do you think that's the reason for the increase in Aggression. aggression from the males? Um, I do think so, yes. Yeah, okay. I definitely think that it has got a lot to do with the increase of boat pressure and the increase of human swimming pressure as well. It's not only, um, you know, because we are working with the coastal inshore species of dolphins, um, people can see them literally from the beach and will be able to, for example, on an SUP or on a surfboard, be able to swim out there and go and engage with them. And the general public has not had um, a briefing in terms of, you know, if you are going to encounter dolphins in the wild, don't reach out and try and grab them. Don't try and, you know, touch them. Don't dive down on them. For a lot of people, they just tend to think that dolphins are always friendly and sociable, huggable. And, you know, again, this kind of stuff comes out of cat captivity and what we really try and get across to people is that these are non-human persons they're exactly the same as you and I yeah. for the emotions that you have dolphins have them as well you know and we need to when we are working with them when we're approaching them we need to come uh, with that kind of a mindset not that okay we're going to expect this amazing encounter with this wild animal it doesn't work like that yeah well, it's mm. like a dog like you wouldn't walk up to a dog that you don't know especially if it was like showing its teeth or something exactly. like that and, and 
and touch it you know, in correct. an area that you don't know. For sure. Like you really need to understand the animal behavior before yeah. you engage, right? Exactly. Sure. You know, we've had it um, on occasion as well where the dolphins will come up to the boat and they'll start tail slapping. So they'll take that tongue, slap it on the surface of the water, um, and there immediately we know, okay, that's a back off. That's a back off. We're not going to get into the water now because something's wrong. Whether it be us, whether, you know, they are, you know, maybe fighting amongst themselves, whatever the case may be, it's not a conducive time to be in the water with yeah, them. Don't so. stop in for tea right now. There's uh, exactly, a family fight going on. <laughs> exactly. You're not welcome, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. so that, that tail slap, wow. Yes, yeah. And, that's and also another one. And how did you learn that? Was that a case of getting in the water when they did that and realizing, oh... An accumulation of experience and then also of other people's experience as well. When we first started this journey, it was the start of the internet, which was really quite exciting, you know. So, you know, obviously we had a number of books that we could lay our hands on, but we also had the internet that was starting to, you know, come to light as well. So we could kind of hook in with uh, people across the globe and have a look at their code of conducts and experiences that they'd had and kind of draw on that experience as well. Um, we also we're very fortunate uh, right in the beginning we were approached by some of South Africa's leading marine mammal scientists uh, one of which is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Vic Cocroft. Dr. Vic actually came up here he's from the Center of Dolphin Studies in, uh, in PE. He basically came up here and showed us the ropes in terms of how to understand wild dolphin behavior, how to put into place the photographic finide program and various other things as well, boating behavior uh, I remember in the old days it was common practice for um, operators to kind of find a pot of dolphins and then corral the dolphins into engaging so basically one would put people in the water and then take the boat and drive the boat around the dolphins so the dolphins would like bow ride basically exactly so oh you know these are kind of things that were happening you know mid 90s when we were here with all the skippers and operators and basically you know kind of coming in having Vic Cocroft here saying whoa you cannot do that you know and us and teaching us why it's bad and then us obviously trying to educate other operators in the area as to which is the right way to to try and work with these dolphins yeah. Do they follow suit? Are they following those guidelines now, the rules? Um, look, most of them are. It can be a little bit of a, a, a touchy subject. You know, it's really difficult to try and find the balance between tourism and what we do in terms of research, you know, and uh, that balance is becoming exceedingly more difficult with more operators that are around. Although we've less had sightings, a, right? Exactly. Yeah. It was up until about 2008, 2009, we had, it was around about seven or eight operators that were launching out of Ponte de Oro <gasps> alone. Thankfully, we got our marine protected area proclaimed in 2009, but they re only reduced or implemented the management plan in 2011, where they reduced the amount of operators to two for Ponte de Oro, one for Malangan, and then one for Mamoli. But prior to that, in the management plan, the first draft of the management plan, it stated there that there should only be one operator per 20 kilometers. And the reason for this is because previous research has been done in Western Australia, where they noticed that an increase of from one operator to two operators saw a drop in the dolphin population. One in seven animals left the area completely. You know, through the scientific recommendations of our colleagues in Maputo at the Natural History Museum, and um, this is what was obviously put forward to government and unfortunately it didn't happen here. So we've got now in essence four operators within 20 kilometers. So you can imagine over peak season, uh, we've got three launches, the other operators got four launches. That's seven launches out of Pontedora alone. We've got the guys in Mullingar, they've got three or four launches as well, mm. and then the guys in Mamoli. So it's a lot of people that are going out there looking for dolphins, trying to swim with dolphins. Yeah, that was always our biggest concern. In a way, we're really sad that we weren't able to 
protect the dolphins as much as we in essence wanted to you know because that's that's the intention that we came with we didn't want to see the gross consumerism of the activity because long term we 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 know that it'll have a negative impact on them so you're clearly very passionate about your dolphins <laughs> what is it about dolphins why is it so important to you to to protect and research and care for these things yeah look um, obviously it's that intelligence and having spent so many 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 years with them being in the water and actually experiencing that intelligence like I say that conscious interaction when they stop and they come and engage we're not feeding them we're not touching them they, they want to do it just because they want to so they're obviously learning from us as much as we're learning from them um, and then of course it is that uh, non-human personhood and it's not only in dolphins it, it's in all animals and yeah that for me is, is, is really that that really moves me yeah and you describe them as sentient beings what does that mean mm. for the benefit of the listeners sentient beings are basically uh, beings that again experience life on a par with you and I uh, they have emotion dolphins uh, have uh, self-awareness as well so if you had to take a mirror and put a mirror in front of a dolphin that actually recognize themselves as a unique individual self-aware self-conscious all of these things make them sentient beings just yeah. like you and I they have phenomenal memory as well you know when we go in and we encounter dolphins um, something that I've noticed is people that come and engage with them on a regular basis tend to be the ones that have what we call the circle swims it's almost as if the dolphins recognize them from a previous tour for example um, I see it with the the volunteers that come in it's not on the first day the second day the third day that they're going to get a circle swim it's going to be one or two maybe three weeks into their stay with us that the dolphins are ah, okay I actually recognize that person and they'll go in and engage yeah and so what exactly is a circle swim they just swim around you yeah they basically just come in really really close uh, sometimes you actually feel like you're swimming in their slipstream and they just kind of do these kind of wow, circles around and sometimes it can be one dolphin sometimes it can be five dolphins um, and this does definitely seem to be a learned behavior as well because like I said prior to 99 there was none of this behavior and then both started it and then of course she passed it on to her offspring and and so it just kind of you know spread throughout the group of dolphins spread throughout the pod yeah so it must be an incredible feeling when that's happening absolutely it is it's really incredible and uh, like I said it, it does it feels like you you swimming in their slipstream and sure. um, yeah, you know our dolphins are really really quite uh, trusting and this is, again is where the the problem can come in because they do come in really really close and it's very easy for somebody to just you know trying to reach out and grab yeah. them and, and tempting, um, right? it's really tempting as well yeah. yeah yeah you know people don't tend to think of that kind of implication I'm very passionate about the code of conduct that we've developed over all the years as well and uh, it's really important that if people are going to swim with dolphins that um, a code of conduct is the first and foremost you know that that is actually abided by yeah, yeah. so we Absolutely. can continue to have amazing encounters with wild dolphins you know we don't want to go to captive facilities we want to create environments in the wild where it is safe for them to come and enc encounter us um, again because they want to yeah you know? I just want to quickly talk about uh, dolphin care Africa and dolphin encounters and you've already alluded to the research mm. part but I wonder yeah. if you can explain the two arms of absolutely of your organization okay so dolphin encounters is the uh, basically the commercial side that funds the research and conservation of dolphin care Africa so um, it was in yeah, it was the early 90s that we set up dolphin encounters first um, that was set up in South Africa as a kind of a tour organization that would bring people to Mozambique on tours so when we initially 
started the project, um, we never used to have once-off um, uh, encounters. Basically, we would all kind of meet up in Johannesburg, wherever the case may be. We'd all kind of travel up in convoy, you know, 12, 20 of us at a time, and we would uh, facilitate a tour. So people would come in on the first day of arrival. We'll do a, f uh, do a full snorkeling course with everybody. So everybody's familiar with gear. A lot of people have never swum in the open ocean before. Oh, wow. So this is quite a big thing. They've never snorkeled before as well. So just to try and, you know, teach them the right way how to swim with dolphins. And then, of course, we'd spend three or four nights here and then we'd do a five launch package. And um, it was quite important for us to have multiple launch packages because this obviously takes the stress off the operator on a once-off, you mm. know. So um, this is some we've seen a huge shift in tourism over the last eight or nine years where we're having a lot more people coming in just for a once-off uh, dolphin experience as opposed to coming in for a tour. And of course, with the once-offs like we saw today, sometimes the dolphins are just not around and people come with really big expectations that they're going to have this encounter mm. on a once-off. So um, that's why we initially developed Dolphin Encount Tours as an actual tour program over three or four nights, five launches as opposed Give to... Give you the best chance. Exactly, mm. exactly. You know, people are traveling far and wide to come here. Um, so yeah, rather, rather try and say, okay, I'd rather do the three or five launches as opposed to just the, the once-off, yeah. yeah. We had a major, major setback in 2010 by means of a fire. So we used to have wonderful facilities uh, in the main campsite. This included our camp. We could sleep uh, kind of 40 people on the beach there. Obviously, our dolphin center, restaurant, bar and surf shop. And um, yeah, unfortunately, that was all lost to a fire. And after that, that is when we saw a huge change in... Um, in the dolphin tourism industry within this area because then of course we didn't have our own accommodation so basically all the other other, other accommodation facilities were saying okay well we'll offer dolphin swims so instead of coming in and saying okay we're going to offer your full package we're going to just do the once-off swim it was a big uh, game changer for us um, and at the same time we also had the secondary dolphin center opening up in the area as well so um, yeah, it was quite a big thing but yeah to cut a long story short basically now the way the structure of the companies works is that we have Dolphin Care Africa, which is basically the main company, and then Dolphin Encounters, which is the product, and Dolphin Center, which is the place in which we operate. And then, of course, we've got the Dolphins of Ponta as well, which uh, is the ID project um, that we work with. So, yeah, those are all the... Uh, the platforms under Dolphin Key Africa now. So we initiated the Photographic Fin ID program in around about 1997. So yeah, last year we celebrated 20 years of collecting dolphins, dorsal fins. And uh, basically the purpose of that is to try and photograph all the dolphins in the area. And over time we'd be able to see what kind of population we're looking at. So currently we've identified and catalogued about 255 dolphins. Um, out of that we can tell you there's X amount of males and X amount of females. But this is out of a population of around about 400 to 450. Um, obviously, we're working with a population that is not all resident. Um, a lot of those dolphins are what we call transient dolphins. So these guys are seen every couple of months, sometimes only every couple of years. They're not here 24-7. But we've got a core residency of around about 60 dolphins that are seen pretty regularly in the area. And you can recognize them based on their dorsal fins. Based on their dorsal fins. I mean, yes. a, a lot of their dorsal fins... Um, you know, a lot of the dolphins have been named uh, according to their kind of characteristics. So, you know, the dolphins that are, are more sociable tend to be the ones that are named and also the ones that have very, very unique dorsal fins um, also tend to get the names like Zorro and Avalon, for example. <laughs> Whereas the finer guys, they are just basically at the 
stage just a number on the catalog. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you need to up the game. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting because obviously when the little baby dolphins are born, there's, um, those dorsal fins are really, really clean. And uh, something that uh, us as researchers in this area try and do is to try and monitor and track those little babies. And the first sign of a little niche or something out of the dorsal fin is like a big celebration for us because, you know, <laughs> given three or four years later, that little one's going to be separated from mom. And if you haven't identified it before that separation, well, now he's kind of lost in the population. So mm. now, you know, we kind of go through every little, you know, all the video footage. I, I did one the other day with the, with the um, Gulliver's little one. She's now developed a little notch right at the base of her tail, just like her mom. And I was like, I said to the girls on the boat the other day, it's almost as if they go to some kind of little tattoo or piercing parlor or something <laughs> so that they can get matching little <laughs> things. So, yeah, much joy when that one got her little ID, um, ID mark, yeah. Oh, but wow. um, it's not only the dorsal fins that we use, we use other factors, uh, you know, other things as well. For example, the pectorals. There are some dolphins that are only identifiable through their pecs, um, body markings, scarrings, that kind of stuff as well, yeah. I get a lot of help from our biologist. Her name is Diana Rocha. She's currently in the UK at the moment furthering her studies, but um, she has been, she had been working on an individual by the name of Elvis. Oh, we, we saw, saw pictures. You saw yeah, pictures of yeah. Elvis, okay. Cheeky so guy. He's one of the cheeky boys, yeah. So anyway, he had this major, major dorsal fin change that it literally took Diana about six months before she could actually eventually say, okay, this is the same dolphin. And she managed to find some really, really fine rake marks um, on his dorsal fin um, from, you know, a couple of years apart. And that's how she was, okay. This dorsal fin's completely changed, but it's the same dolphin kind of thing. So yeah, a lot of time and effort goes into trying to um, match the individuals on the catalog. And what is the, where is that going to go? Like, why is that important to ID the dolphins? Um, it's important because it gives us an idea of what the population is like. So over time, we can also have a look and say, okay, well, all of these dolphins have not been seen in the area for the last X amount of time. Where have they gone? You know, they're not here. It means that they've gone somewhere else kind of thing. Could, would you use it as an early identifier if there's a problem in, in the pod? Uh, yes, I think right. you would definitely be able to. Um, we will be looking at uh, this uh, going forward now because we definitely, feel that there are a lot of dolphins that we're not seeing in the area anymore. There are more than a lot of dolphins we're not seeing regularly anymore. So this is something that we will um, urgently have a look at. Uh, also a key component of the work you do, Angie, mm -hmm. is clear, it's education. Yes. I wonder if you can explain why, why is education on this topic so important? Um, education on this topic is absolutely vital um, because people do tend to think that um, dolphins are these, you know, uh, friendly, huggable, lovable kind of creatures. Um, so it's important to try and get across to people uh, through education that we are working with complete wild animals. You know, we, we sometimes have people on the boat now, even after they've sat through a briefing saying, why can't we touch the dolphins, you know? No. Why aren't we feeding the dolphins? And this is after sitting through a 30-minute briefing. So, you know, education is key, and sometimes we actually have to drill the education sounds terrible but down people's throat you know for them to kind of uh, wake up so mm. you know um you would have noticed in the briefing as well, we do try and cover the, pl the, the the problem with plastic, climate change, all this kind of stuff. People are just unaware. And you know, yeah. if, if every single one of us could just say, no, I'm not take, I'm never ever buying myself another plastic bottle of water again, mm. that is such a major change that we can see on the planet. But and all it has mm. to, all you gotta do is just say, okay, I'm not gonna do it. If I go shopping, I'm never taking a plastic bag from a shop again. And you just say no, and it's possible because you know, you and I have done it. It's amazing Absolutely. how many people 
um, haven't had experiences with wild animals and don't mm. understand what it's like to have an encounter with a wild animal. Right? Exactly. Like uh, we had friends who have a, a, a similar, or the friend of a friend mm -hmm. has a, a dolphin tour business in Tasmania. Okay. And they were saying how they had tourists come and, you know, after, you know, an hour mm -hmm. on the boat or whatever, the, they came and approached and said, you know, here's a hundred bucks. Can you make the dolphins come now, please? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> for for so sure. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Like have very little understanding exactly. of how wild animals work. How, how yeah. wild animals work and also how the elements and the weather work. We are quite um, uh, strict in terms of our launching conditions. So for us, we know our experience has shown us, our data has shown us that anything over kind of sea state three, when the wind is, you know, really kind of blowing, um, the chances of us seeing the dolphins and swimming with the dolphins becomes less and less and less. So, you know, you'll have people that will come to you and say, oh, but the wind's not blowing. It's not that rough out there. We want to go to sea. And you're like, guys, it is really blowing, you know. The chances of us seeing when we're taking you out there is, is really, really slim. But yeah, people don't understand that it's it's not only the animal's behavior, but it's also the, the sea state that is a, a big component in what we do. Um. And I mean, you've spent so much time with these mm. amazing animals, Angie. How would you describe your relationship with them? I mean, they must know you so well, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, they do. Um, my relationship with them is definitely one of respect. Um, you know, I came up initially as a, a young 20-something. I, I was in my mid-20s when I, I first met the dolphins. And it was all very spiritual and all very, you know, kind of hey wow and all this kind of stuff. But then you start having those experiences with them and you start realizing how profound it is to be so close to a wild animal and so humbling that this animal or, the, or this part of animals has actually accepted you into their space and into their home. One other question mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you was, uh, and you've, you've mentioned this already, the establishment of Ponta being a partial marine reserve. Can you tell us what does that mean and, and what, why is that important? We were very active in assisting with the proclamation of the reserve. The res reserve, like I said, was proclaimed in 2009 and it was driven a lot by the Peace Parks Foundation, which obviously works a lot within the Isimangalisi World Heritage Site. So the purpose of the marine protected area is part of a bigger picture in terms of the transfrontier conservation development, which will link Mozambique and South Africa. So um, it was in around about 90 six or so we actually started campaigning for marine protected area so you know we were very active in speaking to government and um, whenever there were issues up here for example the illegal trawlers and the illegal fishers they were always reported and um, yeah, we really did try and campaign um, and we're very thankful when we did get the reserve proclaimed but uh, the importance of obviously protecting this area is because it is uh, really quite diverse. You know, we have not only uh, an amazing uh, marine environment, but we've also got the elephant reserve as well. So here you've got beautiful stuff that you can see, beautiful encounters that you can have on the marine side, as well as the beautiful encounters um, on the terrestrial side. So it's important to have areas like this where animals can strive, they can survive, you know. If you have, for example, sanctuary areas, areas that are closed off to any um, human interference, for example, on the Cozy Bay side, we've got that sanctuary, Teka Benin, we've got that sanctuary as well. These give the areas time to regenerate and recoup as well. So, yeah, it, it's vital to have marine protected areas. And unfortunately, what is it, 5% of the planet or something is protected? Scary, yeah. And 70% of the planet is water. So, um, yeah, we, we really need to try and buck up our game on that side in terms of uh, getting more areas that are protected. Mm. We've heard that the trawlers are just absolutely 
decimating the fish populations in South Africa. Is it a problem here? We used to have a huge problem here prior to the reserve, but now that we have the reserve, we have seen a big reduction in those trawlers. So they are honouring the reserve? They are honouring the reserve, yeah. Look, I mean, we know now that the trawlers, you know, they turn off all the, the satellites and all that kind of stuff on their, sh on their ships when they start going into marine protected areas, so they can't be tracked. So it is possible that they are working offshore there and we're not seeing them. Our marine protected area only extends X amount of kilometres out to sea. It is not all the way. So um, they would be able to fish in the um, economic the zone. Does Mo Mozambique have much of a navy that can patrol the areas? or? Um, they do have a little bit of a navy. Um, look, further north, I know there's huge problems um, with the illegal trawling there, the, f the fishing. Um, I mean, they've got gill netting from the beach and that kind of stuff. So areas, unfortunately, that are not proclaimed marine protected areas anywhere in Africa are going to be exploited. We yeah. visited Zanzibar a few years ago mm. and it is just decimated. There is no fish there. Exactly. Like we went diving yeah. and it's just ghost town. For sure. Yeah. There's nothing there. Yeah, I was in Mauritius so many sad. years ago and the same thing. There's really? You know, Mauritius. Mauritius, yeah. Yeah, snorkel off the, you know, on the little house reef in front there. It's just, there's nothing. It's all kind of... Mm. Either the coral from climate change or the fishing. Or the overfishing, yeah. 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 And I mean, in some of the places they use uh, dynamite as well. You no. Know, they, they dynamite? Yeah. Oh and you let that, whoops, and then all the fish come to the surface and then they just Where's the logic? Like that. that is terrible. There's no logic. There is no logic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Angie, the other question we wanted to ask mm. you was, and you've already alluded to it in the Code of Conduct, is you know, dolphins, swimming with dolphins has been criticised around the world mm. for being unethical and unsustainable. Yeah. What measures are you guys taking to make sure that it is ethical and sustainable? And you've already talked a little bit yes. about it, but I thought <laughs> it might be good to just get it sort of... Every time we're out there, we collect data on every launch that we do. So obviously this goes into our data set, which uh, now has over 8,000 entries. But um, And it, it's through that that we can start you know, pulling out answers as to what's actually going on with this population uh, but most importantly it is following the code of conduct um, so when we initially started the project we developed the code of conduct but obviously over time it has changed quite a lot as we've learned from the dolphins and again as tourism has changed prior to 2009 for example we used to have a dive down policy so you know we were able to dive down with the dolphins but then we noticed that you know more operators coming into the area the quality of the encounters that we were having were starting to drop as well so we just said okay right there and then we've got a no dive down policy um, so that is the, a change that we've made um, prior to then as well it was more than uh, you know um, operators were allowed to do you know multiple drops I'm talking more than more than two drops you know some operators would do four or five drops on a pod of dolphins and uh, yeah, of recently now we're basically going on to one drop now because again we started to see this negative response from the big adult male dolphins and it's interesting because that negative response only comes from the males it doesn't come from the females so um, yeah, so this is something that we're doing now is actually reducing um, reducing the amount of drops that we're doing with the dolphins. Um, and then, yeah, learning from our colleagues in that as well. So we've been working very closely with an organization called the WCA, the World Cetacean Alliance, and they've recently released the global guidelines for marine mammal tourism, swimming with dolphins and whales. And uh, we work quite closely on those guidelines as well. Um, so, yeah. Again, going back to following codes of conduct and really important for people to educate themselves before they book on a dolphin tour as to what the code of conduct should be. So if they're on a, on a boat, on a vessel, and they can see that there's some harassment taking place, skippers are driving aggressively, there's more than one boat in the area with a group of dolphins at a time, they can actually stand up and say, hey, 
you shouldn't be doing this and start putting pressure on operators as opposed to the other way around. Fantastic, mm. yeah. 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 And then there's the basics, right? Like we learned in the briefing this morning, like mm. don't touch the dolphins, don't exactly. swim too close to them, don't chase them. Exactly, <laughs> Things exactly. that people would do, right? That's it, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Not yeah. thinking, I mean, obviously people are not intending to stress out dolphins. That's but it, for sure. But people would do that without they, thinking. They would do that, yeah. 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 And, um, and now thinking about the, the globe more broadly, yes. zooming out and thinking about that 70% ocean. Yeah. What are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night? Plastic, 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 <laughs> and more plastic. We just keep hearing about We just keep hearing about the plastic. You know, we did a, a beach cleanup a couple of weeks ago. A whole, lot, a whole lot of us locals and a couple of tourists all got together. We get special permission from the reserve. We kind of all drive up in convoy up to a place called Ponte de Bella where we kind of stop there and we start collecting. We came back with um, over two tons of rubbish that we collected on the beach uh, just that morning. A lot of it was uh, some uh, fishing rope and that, obviously off all the, the commercial fishing boats, but an astounding amount of plastic, um, plastic bottles and that. But you know, if this, you know, if this stuff is not collected off the beaches, it's gonna break down into the microplastic. And of course now we know the huge problem with the microplastic at the moment. People need to understand that that microplastic is now finding its way into our food source, uh, into the water that we're drinking. So we just have to start saying no to single-use plastic. Yesterday we went for, for a walk down this beach and mm. it is a beautiful, it pristine, pristine beach. Yes. We were like so pristine. Yeah. So impressed with like how mm, little mm. plastic there was. And then we started looking and we found. Then you found the microplastic. Yeah, you open we up found your, it. Like, yeah. Just open, open your, your eyes. eyes. Exactly. And we had like hands full for of sure. junk by the time we That's got back. It. We found a, a gas bottle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Had washed up on okay, the beach. Yes, it had yes. a, one of those remora fish. Really? Stuck on it. That's very interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Must okay. have, who knows where it came yeah. from. Yeah, it must have been in the sea for a while. It yeah. was covered in little like, in shells and barnacles and stuff. And stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And mm. there was a dude on the on the beach fishing, and he yeah. was like, "I'll have it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're doing it for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's an astounding amount of, of stuff. Um, I noticed the other day as well, and it's something that I've been noticing a lot is in the launch site the amount of microplastic that's now coming up, small little pieces of plastic. And if I think back to Three, four years ago, I wasn't seeing microplastic um, to that extent that I'm seeing now. Yeah. yeah. Is there a recycling yeah. operation in, in Mozambique at um, all, or is it Well, actually, we've got um, quite a, a cool little thing going here. We've got a company called uh, Ponte Cocula. They uh, uh, started the uh, initiative a couple of years ago. Um, they basically started a little kind of a rubbish removal company. So all the um, operators and people that wanted to, we, we pay them, they come and collect our rubbish. And then when the rubbish gets to the dump, that's where it separated the glass from the tins. And then it goes to the various recycling places oh, from cool. there. So that's great. Yeah, although it's not in your face, it, it is happening um, there at- um, Behind the at scenes. The, yeah. Oh, that's great, yeah, because mm. I was worried, like, we came yes. with a plastic bottle because you couldn't drink the, the um, you know, the yeah, stuff, because exactly. we came from Aputa, you can't drink For the water. Sure. That's right, and yeah. And we were like, yeah. where's you know, it going? Now what yeah. are we going to do with exactly. this thing, you know? Yeah, no, there at the dump it gets, uh, it gets separated and yeah. shipped off. Are there any solutions out there or anything that you're excited about and you're like, wow, this is like, aside from this amazing <laughs> company that's doing this great job behind the scenes. But in terms of like what you've read and what you've seen out there in the world, is there anything mm. that you're like, okay, this is great, this is something that's going to actually change the game for us on plastic pollution or anything else for that matter? Yeah. Look, I definitely think that there is a movement. Um, people are becoming more aware of uh, the plastic problem. So I think that seeing that movement is really quite exciting. Um, and then of course the movement against uh, captivity. A lot of people are also now becoming very aware that visiting captive facilities is really kind of uncool. And 
becoming aware of where those animals are sometimes coming from as well. A lot yeah. of people don't realize that uh, you know those those poor dolphins are coming out of Taiji or Solomon Islands, whatever the case may be, and that they're actually you know stripped of their families and all the stress and trauma that they go through um, for those captive uh, facilities. So yeah, nice movement coming out of uh, anti-captivity as well. Have you seen cool. blackfish? I have definitely oh my seen gosh. blackfish. Yeah, a really How big eye opener. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, marine mammals definitely don't don't belong in captivity. And I like to think that, you know, science has evolved um, as well. You know, when I initially started way back when, the guys used to say to me, you can't portray human emotions onto the dolphins that you're working with. And I used to say to them, but that's the most ludicrous thing in the world. Yeah. Because if we could portray our human emotions onto them um, and relate to them like people, then we might be able to, you know, harness a bit more love and care for them Respect if them. people yeah. understand them more than merely just a fish kind of thing, you really? know, and they're like, no, 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 uh, you can't do that. And anyway, X amount of years later, now science is now considering them as non-human persons. So we are seeing a shift within uh, the scientific community as well. You know, I, I meet a lot of beautiful um, up and coming scientists now, young people, and they're coming with a whole lot of heart, you know, oh, nice. uh, which is really great. It's not uh, 30, 40 years ago where everything was kind of, you know, Humans, no emotion, yeah. no emotion, no emotion, just an animal, da, da, da. Now it's like, okay, these the, the new generation of scientists um, have got a lot, lot of heart behind them, which, mm. um, which is amazing. great. Are there any <laughs> exciting plans for dolphin encounters or dolphin care Africa mm. in the, this year or the coming? Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, uh, si since the fire, in Darburn episode, um, we, we've been really struggling in terms of accommodation and that, um, but we have uh, we've got ourselves a lovely piece of property in uh, in the middle of uh, of the village, and we are currently developing our volunteer base, which is which will be really great. So uh, hopefully within the next six months or eight months, we'll be able to accommodate up to eight volunteers wow. on our site um, as part of our our research and conservation project. So yeah, that's that's really exciting for us. Um, and then hopefully a museum as well. Something that we do is we reconstruct all the, the animals that um, get, get washed up on the beach, stranded animals. So um, part of what we do is to actually record those strandings. And um, yeah, we've started reconstructing now. So we are, uh, well, we hopefully will get some property so we can put up our museum and uh, new dolphin center sometime. And if you could send one piece of advice or message to the world, with all your experience, what would that be, Angie? Um, less is more, basically, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Try and reduce, uh, try and reduce your consumption to create a, a better place on our planet. Less is more. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and this might be the same answer, but um, if you could share one green living tip for anybody who's listening who may want to change their lifestyle or behavior in, in a way that may help the yeah. oceans. Can you recommend anything? Um, I can most certainly recommend a bamboo toothbrush, small little change that you can make. Um, obviously, you should definitely have your water bottle with you now, um, your takeaway coffee and tea cups, um, and your shopping bags. Small little changes that, uh, that we can just um, include into our daily lifetime, lifestyle. Absolutely. Brilliant. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And finally, before you go, Angie, where can people find you and how can they support the work you do? Absolutely. Um, you can find us on our webpage, uh, www.dolphinencounttours.org. Okay. okay so um, encounters. No, it's tours. O-R-O-U-R-S. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then on Facebook, Dolphin Encount Tours Research Center. Brilliant. We'll put those yeah. links in the Wonderful show notes. Stuff. 
Thank you for hanging out with us and Angie. We hope you enjoyed that discussion and learned a thing or two. From here, we would recommend you check out the Dolphin Encounters Research Center Facebook page, where you can see videos of circle swimming and other dolphin delights. And also, if this stuff gets you going, check out the dolphinencounters.org website, where the team has uploaded a ton of great information. Also worth checking out their volunteering program if you or someone you know is looking to do something a little different. Otherwise, let us know what you think of the episode. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, we'd love for you to leave a sneaky little review. Thank you, and we will see you next time.